This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Daltredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to be discussing an article about giving incarcerated people medications for opioid use disorder and how that impacts post-release recidivism and mortality. How are you this week, Sonia? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, John? Great. Um, it's always a fun week for me because I get to uh, go to the hospital for a week. So I do inpatient and outpatient, and I always kind of enjoy my change in pace and scenery. So it's been nice. Well, I'm really impressed that you can do both of those specialties. A lot of people are not brave enough to take on both of them. Yeah, definitely dying breed, but it's fun. How about you? What have you been up to this week? Just enjoying my outpatient office. I'm looking forward to two great days of addiction medicine coming up on the Thursday and Friday of this week. So life is good. And before we start talking about the article, I did want to share with our listeners a podcast update, which is that we're joining a new podcast network called Ars Longa Media. We're really excited about this new partnership, and I think they will help us take this podcast to the next level, make it even better than it already is. So I hope that our longtime listeners will see some, you know, some new things, but nothing too different. I want to reassure everyone we don't plan to change the basic structure of the podcast. Yeah, I think we're really excited about this, right? I think it's going to open up a lot of new opportunities to make the podcast better and to also kind of hopefully uh, incentivize uh, listeners to continue to listen. So we're really excited about it. So, John, I think there's something that both you and I have been thinking about in addiction medicine this week, and there's some big news, which is the final death of the buprenorphine X waiver. Yeah, I know. That's like kind of humongous news for addiction medicine. So tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, as you know, the omnibus spending bill, which was passed at the end of 2022, it contains some provisions related to addiction medicine. So December 29th, 2022, President Biden signed an act called the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, get it, M-A-T, Act, and it changed the requirements regarding treatment of opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. So specifically, it eliminated the X waiver and it eliminated limits on the number of patients treated by a given provider. So even though it had become super simple to get your DEAX waiver, I think the very existence of that waiver made buprenorphine seem scary and dangerous and like something a mainstream doctor wouldn't really want to be involved in. You know, a lot of people are surprised to hear that doctors can really prescribe any medication for anything they want. Even though the, the things that a medicine is FDA approved for can be relatively limited, once a medicine is approved, any doctor can use it really for anything. There are very few medications that require special training or certificates to prescribe. And all of those sort of special medications are classified such because they have potential life-threatening side effects. And buprenorphine is not on that list of medications. The only reason it had a special waiver was because it's used to treat addiction. And again, it's just another kind of mark of stigma against our specialty and stigma against patients who have opioid use disorder. So buprenorphine had this special certificate you had to get, which made it seem very dangerous. And I think just dissuaded a lot of doctors from prescribing it. So that waiver is now gone. Anybody with a DEA number can prescribe buprenorphine the same way we can prescribe any other opiate. So John, what do you think about the end of the X waiver? 
Yeah, so I think that um, I kind of felt conflicted at first when I read about this, mostly as like most things were like kind of initially you kind of feel a certain way. It's probably because I didn't understand it well enough. Um, but the one thing that was really kind of positive for this Mainstream Addiction Treatment Act is that while it's true, the waiver is removed um, and there's concerns that maybe someone could prescribe it inappropriately or, or give it like a loose indication for the medication um, because they don't have the proper training. That's really not the case at all. Um, part of the act also states that going forward, anyone applying for a DA license is going to have to do eight hours of training related to substance use disorder and opioid use disorder. So really kind of all they've done is they've kind of forced everyone to do the training and become kind of waiver knowledgeable in, in a way. So I think that, you know, yes, the waiver is eliminated, but really I think more so that's kind of recruiting everyone to make them know the training to, to treat this disorder and identify this disorder. So I think it's a really good thing overall. Yeah, I think the increased training requirements are a really great idea as well. I did hear that people who are board certified in addiction medicine I think are exempt from doing that one-time training. So you and I might not have to do it, but we'll see. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Well, a couple more hours of, of, of MAT training would never be bad, I guess. I wonder if we create the MAT training if we are allowed to be exempt. I sort of thought about that because you and I created many, many, many hours of addiction-focused CME in 2022. And being the creator of CME doesn't means you can't get credit for that CME. So I had to go do some other different addiction credit. That's funny. Yeah. Well, let's hear about this article today, Sonia. All right. Well, look, I am really excited to talk about this article. So this was an article almost a year old, um, not quite a year old, titled Recidivism and Mortality After In-Gel Buprenorphine Treatment for Opioid Use Disorder. It was published in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence, uh, February 2022. So I just want to start with some background. There are 1.9 million people currently incarcerated in the United States, and up to 20% of them are estimated to have opioid use disorder. Within three months of release, 75% of inmates with opioid use disorder have relapsed, and 40 to 50% of them have been rearrested within one year. So that's really terrible statistics. So people who have opiate use disorder who are incarcerated do very poorly after release. The American with Disabilities Act, the ADA, requires that prisons and jails treat inmates with opioid use disorder and treat them up to standard of care using medications, but many do not, especially smaller county jails and rural jails. And finally, a final background fact, Treatment of opiate use disorder with buprenorphine or methadone in general leads to a 50 to 70% reduction in mortality. And there's absolutely no reason that people who are incarcerated should not receive these treatments. So John, what's been your experience working with patients who have either recently been incarcerated or are heading into incarceration? Because I know you don't treat patients who are actually currently incarcerated. Yeah, that's true. I do have a fair number of patients that transition from my clinic to um, incarceration. And then I also work with our kind of local prison release program. So I do have patients that are coming out of prison into uh, treatment for the outpatient basis and kind of reestablishing their lives. And I guess, you know, a, a couple things. Um, one is, I guess this is just me being naive and not knowing any better, but I would have think or that sending someone to prison, it's a controlled environment, that that would be like a closed area where they would have restricted access to drugs. Probably people would have a better chance of doing well since they're kind of 
under lock and key. Um, and actually, that's like not true whatsoever, I found out. And I've been educated quite a bit about this from my patients coming out of incarceration. There's drugs are very copious in prison. Access is not really an issue for most patients or most people in incarceration. Um, not only that, um, there's not much to do except for to do drugs. So there's a lack of other opportunities, other stimuli to kind of prevent you from doing that. And a, a lot of the people that are under the correction um, system, they're not in like closed locked units per se. They're kind of in like work release. So they like, they leave during the day, they go to a job, they have a certain amount of time to make it from point A to point B. Um, yeah, they are tracked, but there's lots of ample opportunities to pick up drugs. So it, it's kind of almost a free flowing environment. Um, so that's kind of one thing I learned. I have also found that patients that are kind of making this transition, I think that oftentimes like change as a human being, it's a, more of a continuum or a spectrum, but like people don't really look at it that way. We, we have our new year's resolutions. We have the birth of a kid. We have kind of a release from prison. We kind of divide life into chapters based upon these big moments. So it can be a really great time for people to kind of redefine who they want to be after being incarcerated. How about you, Sonia? Yeah. I mean, like I said, 20% of people in jail do have opioid use disorder. And some statistic I read was that I think 77% of injection drug users will end up in jail at some point in their lives. So the majority of our patients with opioid use disorder will end up incarcerated. And it's been an education for me hearing about what my patients go through while they're incarcerated. Um, but you're right. The drug use continues. The opioid use disorder does not really go away because someone is incarcerated and because of the destabilizing effect of being incarcerated and kind of losing everything in your life. Relapse seems very likely once people get discharged. I don't see people discharged from jail with a lot of hope. And so it's a very dangerous time. And I think the more services that they can receive while they are in jail, the better that they will be. And I think what you said about like destabilizing, you know, people often with how slow our legal system is, a lot of times people are going to jail for something they did like 24 months, 36 months ago. A lot of my patients have been stable and then they're going to jail. It's really kind of not something to help them. It's going to be just a, a point for destabilization. They, they've they been in recovery for 18 months, 24 months at that point in time doing well. So it's, it is hard. Yeah. And I don't know that much about the legal system, but I guess I just see that my patients are not really improved by incarceration. They definitely wish to avoid it in the future because it's so unpleasant. So that is motivating for some of them. But as we know, if you have opiate use disorder and you're doing things to get drugs, you're not really in full control of that. You don't logically assess the consequences and do what's best for you. You just are sort of driven by your desire for opioids. And so I think that's why so many people just end up reincarcerated. So let's talk about the clinical question. This was a really cool study of two adjacent jails, one that offered buprenorphine to the inmates and one that didn't. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office Jail began offering buprenorphine and naltrexone in 2016. The Hampshire County House of Corrections did not offer any medication for opiate use disorder. These two jails were in adjacent counties in Massachusetts with similar recidivism rates and the two of them made a natural experiment on the effects of in-jail treatment for opioid use disorder. The study compared the post-release recidivism between the population of people with opioid use disorder in the two jails. 
there were, just so you can get a sense of the numbers, 197 people with opiate use disorder in the Franklin County Jail who got medication or the jail that offered medication for opiate use disorder, and 272 people in the study from the other jail, the Hampton County House of Corrections. So a real cool natural experiment comparing two jails that were geographically in counties that were right next to each other, one that offered medication for opiate use disorder and the other that did not. So pretty easy to understand question. The population was adults incarcerated with opioid use disorder, and they were in the jail between January 1st, 2015 and April 30th, 2019, and they were followed for one to two years after release. Almost 100% were male, 91% in one jail, 100% in the other jail. 96% were white. Average age was 35. Average age at first arraignment was 18, which is kind of sad. So it means that many, many of these people had their initial sort of exposure or experience with the criminal justice system while they were still children. And the average number of incarcerations was five. So people who were in and out of jail quite a lot. The intervention that was looked at was people being released from the Franklin County Sheriff's Office jail where medication was available, compared to being released from the Hampshire County House of Corrections where medication was not available. The outcomes that they looked at was first, who got medication for opiate use disorder in jail, and then what was the post-release recidivism like? So that included incarceration, probation violations, and arraignments, and they also looked at mortality. So, John, what did you think of this clinical question? I think it was really interesting that basically how they kind of set this up with the two kind of conflicting counties kind of doing something differently. So it wasn't like a true randomized control trial, but it really kind of relatively compared like an area of the country with two interventions that are relatively um, disconcordant from one another. I really liked that. I thought it was interesting and really like applicable to the real world in many regards. Yeah, I totally agree. So let's talk about validity. I think this was a valid study. There are some limitations, but overall, it was pretty good. So starting with the limitations, it was an observational study. And like you said, not a randomized controlled trial. So the two groups, the two jails were not necessarily as similar at baseline as we might hope. Also, when you're looking at recidivism rates, it only takes into account crimes discovered, not actual total crimes committed. And also, while the two profiled counties are adjacent, they're not identical. I'm from Massachusetts, and I recognize both these counties. And one of them, Hampshire County, that did not offer the medication is a larger county. It actually has a small city in it. So it's got a little bit more of an urban feel for some of it, whereas the other county, Franklin County, is much more rural, smaller county. So even though they're adjacent, they might have somewhat different populations. Also, the jail that offered medication for opiate use disorder may have offered different screenings, in-jail support, psychosocial treatment, and linkage to post-jail treatment and community resources because you would assume patients would like to continue their medication after release. So the two groups may have gotten different treatments beyond just the primary difference examined in the study. Some strengths of this study design Um, They adjusted for covariates, including prior incarceration, pretrial incarceration versus sentenced, because these were characteristics that were not similar between the two jails at baseline. They also conducted several sensitivity analyses, looking for potential bias due to gender, prior criminal justice experience, holding status at their index incarceration, and what type of medication they received from opioid disorder. And there was no difference in the outcomes in any of these sensitivity analyses. 
And finally, it was funded by NIDA and the University of Massachusetts. And I think that funding is unlikely to cause bias. So, John, do you think that this was a valid study? Yeah, I think so. For like many of those same reasons, I think it, there was like some minor limitations about the two being not truly randomized, but I think it was well done overall. All right, let's talk about the results. So first set of results are really just demographic, describing what happened in these two prisons, what type of medication for opiate use disorder people got. So remember, one of the jails, the Hampton County House of Corrections, no one got medication. And if you were on medication prior to incarceration, you got taken off it. So the Franklin County Jail did a great job. 93% of the inmates with opiate use disorder got medication, and 86% of those got buprenorphine. About 39% were on treatment before entering jail, and they were continued on their medications. The Hampton County Jail offered no treatment, as I said. So all of those patients, if we assume it's the same, that would be 39% of the patients with opiate use disorder, had to be withdrawn from their medication. And it kind of hurts my heart to imagine all these people having to go through buprenorphine withdrawal while incarcerated, which is an uncomfortable situation. Um, Just knowing how difficult buprenorphine withdrawal is when I see my own patients go through it in the outpatient setting. So that was the first set of results. The next set of results was the big one, recidivism. And I just want to point out, this is a study of recidivism, but they looked at an intervention that took place while the person was incarcerated. This is not anything that happened after they left the jail. So a lot of studies of incarcerated people look at linkage to treatment or giving people some kind of services after they leave jail and seeing how they do. This is a study of a service that was offered while the patient was in jail with no looking at what happened after release. And so it's really an intervention that the jails themselves can control. A jail might say, well, I can't, I don't know what people are going to do when they leave. That's not my responsibility. Why would I bother? But this is something the jails really can do while the people are in their custody. And so that's why I think it's an important study. So bottom line, surprise to no one, there was more recidivism coming out of the jail that did not offer medication for opiate use disorder. Overall, the recidivism from that jail, the Hampton County House of Corrections, was 63%. So 63% of people got arrested, arraigned, reincarcerated within a year of release. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office, 48% were re-incarcerated within a year of release. And that's still bad. It's almost half, but it's not 63%. It's significantly better. There were also higher rates of arraignments, not just full re-incarcerations. They did point out there was no difference in probation violations between the two populations, and the authors theorized that this means that the people received the same kind of treatment administratively. It wasn't like One county was really strict and the other was more lax. They received the same number of probation violations. So the two counties were theorized to have relatively similar rates of kind of control over the recently incarcerated people or watching over them. They also looked at the types of crimes committed and drugs and violent crimes were actually not statistically different between the two groups, but property crimes, which are often committed to support drug use, were very, very different between the two counties. So of the people who were released from the Franklin County Sheriff's Office, 10% were rearrested or reincarcerated for property crimes. And from the other one, 23% were rearrested for property crimes. I shouldn't say rearrested, were either arraigned or incarcerated for property crimes. So that's the results. John, what did you think of them? 
I thought it was surprisingly optimistic for addiction medicine. I really like the fact that um, this was something that showed something positive that we can offer people. Um, and from a public health standpoint and from a societal standpoint, something we can offer to really help out this kind of vulnerable group that's likely to relapse and also likely to kind of be back in this kind of cyclic system that never ends. I like how you say it's positive. It's true. Many of the addiction articles I read are not really looking at interventions to help people. They're more descriptive and showing who's got a problem and with what, and they're just depressing to read. So it is nice to read about an intervention that actually made a difference. So finally, will these results help me in patient care? So I do not directly care for incarcerated people, but many of my patients have been incarcerated and so I think it is relevant to those patients. As I said, 77% of people who inject opioids will be incarcerated at some point in their lives. I will definitely advocate for my patients whenever possible from the outside, reminding them and their families that they should be continued on their medication for opiate use disorder and supporting that if I can. I actually had a patient who was incarcerated out of state and the state where this person was incarcerated did not offer buprenorphine, but they did allow me to write the prescription that the patient's mother picked up and was able to send to him while he was incarcerated in another state. So, you know, I was able to help at least a little bit in that way. And I think this study will give policymakers an incentive to provide medication for opiate use disorder since it reduces recidivism. And honestly, that is something that both parties can agree on. If there's an easy, relatively inexpensive intervention that reduces recidivism, I'm sure everybody would be behind it. And then finally, an update. In 2019, a lawsuit forced the jails in Massachusetts, all of them, including the one profiled in this paper, to provide medication for opioid use disorder. So now both jails offer buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone. And for anyone out there caring for people who are incarcerated or caring for people anywhere with opioid use disorder, discrimination against these patients, refusal to provide medication, refusal to allow medication to be offered in your hospital, clinic, neighborhood is illegal. It violates the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it just, it can't happen. These patients need to be given appropriate treatment and the federal government is willing to back that up. So that is my summary. What did you think, John? Do you think this article will change your practice at all? Um, I don't think it really changes my practice per se. I think it kind of speaks to what we already know that Linking people into treatment has many benefits. It's good for the person. And I think many of us from like a humanitarian perspective feel that providing these treatments is the right thing to do. But I think that some people aren't kind of motivated that way. They they don't feel the same way, even though there's momentum that addiction is a disease. Um, I think that that other group, though, kind of motivating them to support treatment through like the financial burden that this has on our system and also how this can kind of lead to increased rates of incarceration. And that's probably not the best thing fiscally to do is, is also awesome. I would love like in the future to see like a cost analysis of like kind of the of how this intervention played out. Just kind of, you know, we often think of like cost analysis from like quality of your life, but also um, in terms of treatment options that we give patients, I'd love to see a cost analysis of of this intervention on like the legal system in that county. That would be a really interesting thing I'd love to see. If anyone's out there listening, John wants you to do a cost analysis. We'll profile that on an upcoming podcast. No one wants to hear that, I'm sure, but I think it'd be interesting. This is a call for papers right now from the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. If you want to write that paper, give us a call.
All right. Well, we got some comments from listeners I wanted to share. First, a brief message from Dr. Warner, the first author of the paper we reviewed in episode 16 about prescription opioids and cognitive decline. She wrote on Twitter, quote, thank you for highlighting our work and grateful to the at NIH aging for supporting this important work. You can follow her on Twitter at nwarnermd. And thank you, Dr. Warner, for all your hard work. We also got an email from a listener, Bob Daniels, who wrote us about episode 11. This was the one about wine glass and bottle size on alcohol consumption patterns. He says, quote, the problem of controlling and enjoying drinking is key for someone with alcohol disorder. Sometimes we control it. Sometimes we enjoy it. For someone who control and enjoy their drinking, I'm not sure that they are an alcoholic or at least not yet. Thank you for your thoughts, Bob. Um, it's true, the study that we talked about there, it's not necessarily um, about full-blown alcoholics, although it could apply to them as well. The study was really about um, kind of societal alcohol consumption. So kind of even moderate alcohol use, as we've talked about in previous um, episodes, does have health impacts. So as a society, if you look at this as a whole, decreasing alcohol consumption and how that can affect us, I think that was kind of what they were really aiming towards there. It's interesting. I was just reading on somewhere online that the Canadian health authorities, whatever you would call them, have released new recommendations for alcohol consumption, basically saying that no alcohol use is beneficial for your health and that people really should limit their alcohol to, I don't know, one or two drinks a week, some extremely small amount, much smaller than in the United States. So I think the tide is turning on alcohol and the notion that somehow low-level alcohol use is good for you is slipping away. It did, I feel like I hear a study like in like kind of like a lay journals or lay press all the time. It's like alcohol, chocolate, cherry juice. It seems like the three things that we just love to st- coffee. The, the, it's like the vices that we love that we just want to hear are good for us, but we, we know deep down they're not. Except for coffee. They have not been able to pin anything on coffee. Don't even say... Don't even say that, man. I love my coffee. Big beans got you. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, email us, message us on Twitter or Facebook, join our Facebook group, or comment on our YouTube channel. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Video production by Paul Kennedy. We are a production of Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles that we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.